This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hi, this is Professor Mark Greenbaum, a member of the full-time faculty at Suffolk University Law School, where I teach courses in labor and employment law, employment discrimination, and labor and employment arbitration. And more details about my background can be found on my webpage, which you can find at the appropriate tabs on law.suffolk.edu. This is Act 2 of the current drama between the NFL, and I guess we now have to call them the Brady Plaintiffs, and as people are probably aware, the district court judge hearing the request for injunctive relief, that is the request to enjoin the lockout, ruled yesterday that she had jurisdiction to do it, that the plaintiffs had a probability of success, and had demonstrated irreparable injury. She heard arguments a little over two weeks ago, and it's pretty clear to me that she's been working pretty hard. She issued an 89-page decision, and on what I would say two relatively quick but somewhat thorough readings, did a very careful job with the issues. I don't see any glaring holes in her reasoning. I would predict, ultimately, she'll be affirmed by the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. I think for students of the law, the most interesting discussion in the opinion is about the so-called primary jurisdiction issue. That is, the owners would take the league, was taking the position that she should not rule on the antitrust claims until the National Labor Relations Board had ruled on the owner's charge that the decertification was a so-called sham. She rejects that for multiple reasons, and I think the part that I learned something from was that a similar tactic was tried in 1990, and the general counsel of the board at that time, that was a remarkably more conservative general counsel, rejected the league's position. I think another irony is, as a matter of law, I always thought that their primary jurisdiction defense was the strongest, but there's one big hole in it, which is, even if she had held, as she did not, that the NLRB had primary jurisdiction and that she was required to defer to the board until the general counsel had determined whether or not to issue a complaint. The fact is, if the board general counsel refuses to issue a complaint, that's it. That would destroy even the owner's view of the existence of primary jurisdiction. And in a somewhat remarkable bit of authority within the federal government, if the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board refuses to issue a complaint, that is a final decision, but it is not subject to judicial review. Meaning that if the general counsel were to say that the owner's charge uh, does not state a violation of the National Labor Relations Act, that's it. Kaput. End of story. So, even though it was their strongest defense in sort of a as a matter of legal principle, you know, it was potentially one of not long-lasting duration. Now, the real, I think, interesting issues are what happens next. And we know that the owners are going to ask both the district court judge or, in the alternative, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to stay the ruling. If either body stays the ruling, then, in effect, we're back to the beginning. Where the fun would really happen is if they decline to stay the ruling. And you're looking at a number of very interesting possibilities. 
I'm going to give you my best guess as to what some of them are. First, it seems to me that any player who is not now bound by a contract would be a free agent. Straight free agency, no restricted free agency or anything else, a straight free agent. Second, I think that those players who've been hit with the so-called franchise tag will also be free agents because the validity of the franchise tag is itself a product of the collective bargaining agreement, which now no longer exists. And because there is ostensibly no collective bargaining relationship, its continued enforcement would not be within what we call the non-statutory labor exemption to the antitrust laws. Also, there would be no salary cap. The issue of a rookie salary cap obviously would would not be there, uh, and so you'd have what I would call organized chaos. Now, what does experience suggest will happen if this occurs? Uh, at the risk of being cynical, this would be my projection, that notwithstanding the formal end of the lockout, you're not going to see many owners extending offers to free agents. The Brady plaintiffs will then use that lack of free agent activity to go back before the district court and claim that the owners are acting in collusion with one another to depress the free agent marketplace, thus giving rise to a new and independent violation of the antitrust laws. Now, why do I say this will happen? Experience. It's happened twice in baseball, even under a collective bargaining regime. And I think that the owners are so entrenched in their position that there's going to be, at minimum, subtle, unarticulated pressure on them not to make offers. And I suspect that with appropriate discovery and emails and everything else, it would not be surprising to find at least some evidence of collusion or coordination. I mean, certainly if you read the initial news stories about what has happened when players have shown up for at training camp facilities this morning. They've been allowed to come in, and people have said hello, but they've been barred from using the weight room or any of the other facilities, and there are still restrictions on contact between the coaches, general managers, and the players. Now, in theory, that injunction is out there, and the fact that the league is taking somewhat of a apparently unified stance at this point would, I think, be evidence that they are still acting in concert notwithstanding the fact that the judge has indicated that that acting in concert violates the antitrust laws. So, you know, from a sports fan's perspective, I'm not sure what the best outcome is. From the lawyer's perspective, it'll be a lot more fun if the injunction is allowed to stay and it's not stayed by the Court of Appeals. And if I go back to being a sports fan, it would seem to me, logic would suggest, in the chaos that would be presented by the injunction standing, that that should facilitate a settlement. But that depends on logic, and there has been a distinctive lack of logic through this whole dispute coming really from both parties, but I would say more so the owners. Therefore, it could be the equivalent of what we all need at this point in legal history, a lawyer's full employment act. There are still other issues, I think, that have to be played out. The apparent divergences of opinion between the retired players and the Brady plaintiffs, the so-called uh, dissenting group of 70 people, which is really a very small fraction 
of the number of players in the league, but those issues are further down the road. Right now, the whole ball of wax, you know, really rides upon whether or not the district court or the circuit court stays the injunction. If they stay it, we're back to square one. If they don't stay it, we're going to have a lot of fun, and Act 3 will be coming here sooner than I would anticipate. This is being recorded on Tuesday, April 26th, which is the day after the district court's ruling. And from what I've been able to ascertain this morning or early this afternoon, the earliest it would appear that there will be any ruling on the league's request to stay the um, injunction will be tomorrow, Wednesday the 27th. If the ruling is stayed, the first half of what I said still carries. If it's not stayed, the whole thing is still good. Thank you, and I look forward to talking to you for Act 3. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.